Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. The Lord said to Solomon, Since you haven't asked for long life or riches or the lives of your enemies, but have asked for a discerning judgment for yourself, I give you a heart wise and shrewd as none before you. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. King Solomon was a mighty ruler and knew God. Because he knew God, he was able to surrender himself and acknowledge that God was at the helm of his life, not himself. For no matter how powerful a monarch, nothing lasts forever except God and eternal life, which we as Christians are promised through belief in Jesus Christ. Trying to control our lives is hard work and fruitless. Letting God control our lives is rewarding. The stress goes, life becomes great, and when it isn't, we can rest in our trust in God and look to the higher things out of this world. So by surrendering to God and asking for a discerning heart, Solomon received what he asked for and all he didn't ask for. Amazing, isn't it? And an affirmation of what I discovered while homeschooling. When I sought the kingdom of God first, everything else fell into place. But we battle against that, don't we? Oh, so hard. Read what God gave to Solomon. Be assured that God knows exactly what we want and need to be able to thrive on his earth. And when we ask for discernment, we will also get riches and glory as no king ever had. However, be prepared, for when we do surrender utterly to God, these riches and glory may not be what we expect. But rest assured, we will be happy. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week is Unschooler graduate and filmmaker Peter Kowalki, who has chatted with me before about the long-lasting effects homeschooling has had on his life. Today we're going to be talking about a journey he took to deepen his spirituality and get to know God better. I will remain on this theme of discovery and unveil what I think I may reap from my gap year spent in England, what retreat means, and how Bede Griffiths ties into all of this. So get a strong cup of sweet tea and a biscuit or two, and prepare to be challenged. Ooh, it's hot. I've been back a week, and it's pretty brutal stuff coming from the cool climate of England straight into a suffocating Texas summer, sun or not. This is definitely going to take some getting used to. No more leisurely walks through cool woodlands. September isn't that far away, though, so I'm sure I'll survive. Maybe my teacher daughter has the right idea by living by the sea. Time to go to the beach? I'm home for a week and I've been thinking of self-discovery. What can I use from all the experiences I had during my year away to better the next phase of my life among family, friends and unwelcome ruts? I'm a retreater, have been since I was a girl growing up in a convent. So I went online to New Advent, a Catholic magazine, and encyclopedia to get a more structured definition of the word and perhaps apply it to the secular term banded around a lot today, gap year. A retreat can be defined as a series of days, in my case about 400 of them, passed in solitude, not necessarily alone, but inwardly focused 
and separate from a common and profane use. Read worldly or rut for this. To a sacred use. Read lists of pros and cons and hours of worship and prayer. The definition ends with a person who attends or makes a retreat dedicates him, him or herself to the service and worship of God by prayers, rites and ceremonies. And I did a lot of the latter. Many holy men and women, Jesus included, fled society to live on their own in retirement in a solitary place, deserts or monasteries, so that they could reflect and pray before a major event in their lives. Jesus spent 40 days after his baptism in the desert and was tempted by the devil before embarking on his three-year public ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. I retreated to get away from the fever and agitation of modern life, to enter a soul-searching that's not possible in our plugged-in society. I didn't go to India, I didn't go to a monastery, but I went to another Western country and I laid aside the trappings of modernity and only used technology to communicate more easily with my children. For the most part, my brave Texan and I went back in time about 20 years. No car, no television, no music, no meat. Well, maybe the odd sliver of chicken. You'll just have to ask my sovereign gentleman about that. We embarked on a healthier lifestyle that hopefully will prove beneficial. So how do we apply this traditional word retreat to the gap year? Well, it's supposed to be a time to reflect, be it between high school and college, single to married, family to empty nester, employee to retiree, on the world and our place within it. Well, that's to um, meditate or reflect on the world and our place within it. The gap year is not just for young people either. It's attracted a new word in the phrase, grey. So it's become a grey gap year for the baby boomers, jumping outside their boxes to find themselves. So jump on the bandwagon. It's a fruitful endeavour and will give you a great perspective on where you are in life right now, without the children hanging on and hanging on. The history of taking a break is a long one in Britain. Being an island race, we've always set sail for adventure on foreign shores. Young men with wanderlust could join the Merchant Navy or Royal Navy and explore the world on what was the original working trip overseas. For those who found a destination where they could see themselves living for periods of time, there was the opportunity to abscond and set up life somewhere new. Some of these men earned their fortunes in this way, returning home once their coffers were full and settling back into life in the UK. This isn't the category I fell into. Plenty of fortunes were spent, but none were made this year. After the Second World War, there was a belief that by giving young people the opportunity to travel and experience new cultures, there'd be a greater chance at achieving world peace as new generations gained understanding of other cultures and each other. Obviously, it didn't work the way they imagined. Travel's always been associated with learning and becoming a more rounded person. We know that from some of my wandering guests. Cultural exchanges took place in the past, which are still evident in many places. English, for example, is spoken as a second language almost everywhere. The gap year is changing, though, to keep up with the times and may even be needing a new name soon, or at least a new definition. In recent years, more organised excursions have taken shape and include leadership development programmes for university grads and a life-enhancing outreach programme which provides expeditions and personal development support to some of the more marginalised young people in the UK. 
These look good on CVs, and future employers are kept in mind when students and their families are constructing these year-long trips. But isn't this defeating the object of the gap year? Are young people being lured back into the let's not waste a moment in our breakneck society mode? I don't know how great spent a lot of time at home observing nature, listening to the silence, walking, worshipping and praying, will look on my returning CV, or resume as I must now call it, but my spiritual well-being is healthier, and this year's experience cannot be reduced to pen and ink, at least not yet. Don't compromise the gap here, grey or not. Enjoy it to its full potential. The year my blue-eyed cowboy and I have just taken in England was very much a self-discovery trip for this particular moment in our lives. I'm very comfortable with whom I am and where I'm going, but without young children to fuel my forward path, my point of view had to change. All of a sudden, I wasn't an example-setter 24-7. No one was looking to me for approval, except perhaps my handsome Texan. In fact, I no longer have the parents I always wanted approval from, and that made a huge difference in my life, even though I hadn't lived beneath their constant scrutiny for more than 20 years. The feeling was still there. I've always been a maverick. I'd started asking probing questions about systems and institutions at my boarding school when I entered my later teen years. I ended up being made a leader, head girl in fact, to keep my anarchistic nature harnessed. Then I married someone who didn't have what my parents considered a stable job with a pension and financial security for the rest of our lives. Boring. My parents lived both in fear of my soul as I left the Catholic Church and my future as I turned my back on the civil service, neither of which deterred me from continuing to explore who I was in relationship to relationships. I've never walked the road most travelled. My father did the right thing by society, and I was sad when he told me after a few years of retirement that he'd always wanted to sail in his own boat around the world. He was hardly a duck in water, never being able to swim well, and I'd never have guessed at this secret since he didn't have any hobbies to do with water. He was a strong walker and could navigate his way anywhere, both on foot and in his car, using an ordnance survey map long before the days of the sat-nav. Brilliantly, he'd managed to find himself creative expression by building and making anything asked of him, be it a new dress for me or a cowboy fort for my brother, new kitchen cabinets for the home or conduct a complete mechanical service on his car. So I would never have guessed he had a burning desire that he kept under wraps. But this phenomenon is not limited to my father. When I asked friends if you could do anything in your life, no holds barred, what would you do? No one has once said to me, continue with the job I'm doing. They always have some burning ambition, if only. And I'd never guess it because somehow it's buried deep. So deep it doesn't even emerge as a hobby, similar to my father. A dream never allowed to see the light of day. How sad. I can honestly say I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And it has nothing to do with upbringing, expectations or trust funds. Well, perhaps it does have a lot to do with the first, because I saw my parents and their neat, predictable lives and thought, uh-uh, not for me. I fulfilled their expectations, three years at college and a degree, and then went on to do what I felt I had to do for me. I observed the mindset of my peers slowly changing, as their parents died perhaps, and definitely as they get older in a less predictable and stable world. More and more are embarking on second careers, things they really wanted to do but were afraid to 30 years ago. Perhaps we're on the verge of a brave new world. 
Perhaps we're at last prepared to make the changes we want to see in our world and help our children make the changes they want for their futures. My guest this week is not afraid to be the change he wants to see in his world. I am thrilled to welcome back Peter Kowalki. It's been over a year and a lot has happened during that time. Peter's a self-described lifelong unschooler whose highly praised documentary, Grown Without Schooling, followed 10 unschooled graduates into the world and recorded how they fared in their individual life choices. Peter has a site where you can hear him talk to unschoolers called The Unschooler Experiment. He lives in New York City and has consulted as a homeschool expert for media outlets such as the BBC, the New York Times and the Times of India. He worked in India promoting homeschooling for a research institute called Shikshanta and has recently returned from a six-month sojourn in Asia where he was on a personal quest. And I'll let him tell you about his experience when we get back after this short break. So don't go away. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, most of uh, the time I, I spent in Asia has uh, been in a monastery in India, actually. And, uh, n- you know, when you think about a monasteries in India, you think about, like, big mountains and secluded places. But I was actually living in, in Delhi, the capital city of India, most of the time. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a monastery that had its own metro stop. So oh. it, was a little, it was a little oasis from the city, but it was definitely in the city. And you say metro stop. Do you mean like an underground? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I can't imagine an underground in India. I well, see the buses and, and well, that. I mean... I mean, it wasn't literally underground, but it was it was a metro. It was a, a metro because Delhi has that nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, that shows you how modern monasteries are these days. Mm-hmm. You know, when the uh, the monks have uh, iPads and iPhones, and yeah. they, they have their own metro stops too. Wow, wow! And so it was right in the middle of the city. It was, yeah. I uh, basically, you know, I've been uh, following uh, Vedanta for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has kind of a homeschooler story to it, mm-hmm. actually. I, I, I 
kind of reverse engineered Vedanta. And, and Vedanta basically, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a cousin of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in common with Buddhism. And that's usually what I tell uh, uh, Americans who know nothing about it. Just think Buddhism and you're close. Mm-hmm. Um, and as those who know Buddhism, uh, they know that Buddhism basically came from Hinduism. And, you know, there's way, way long ago, more than 4,000 years ago, there was, you know, this, this sort of Hindu faith. And out of that came many things, Buddhism and Vedanta being two of them. So it's sort of like Buddhism. And uh, so I, I basically, growing up, nobody told me what to believe. And uh, when I got to be uh, a young teenager, I, I asked the big questions and uh, tried to figure out you know, the meaning to life and all, all those things. And what I came up with um, – was sort of a synthesis of a lot of religions because one of my uh, ideas was, okay, you got all these people in these major religions saying, you know, Christianity is right. Oh, no, no, Islam's right. No, Buddhism is right. You know, and there's a whole bunch of religions and a whole bunch of people saying that they're right. And there were too many people in each of these religions. Yeah, you could say some of them might have been a little silly. But there were smart people in each of these faiths too. So as a unschooler, I – well, said, well, geez, how do I make sense of this and make sense of science too? Because I don't, you know, I believe in science. And uh, so my, my thesis as a little uh, teenager was what are they saying in common? Because who really knows what, you know, what, what's right and wrong? But if everybody is saying certain things, then, uh, you know, th- those things might be more likely to be right. And so that sort of led me down the path of Vedanta. And I didn't know what it was called at first. I sort of reverse engineered it and it was very uncomfortable for the, the first uh, four or five years because uh, I was you – know, I didn't want to be like one of those people that like was starting a cult or inventing a religion and because you know, I'm a reasonable person and, and if you're doing that, you probably there's something wrong mm-hmm. if, you know, if you're coming up with something truly new. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I was very uncomfortable at first and then I ran across, oh, there's this – faith called Vedanta and it's exactly what I had come up with. So I was feeling a lot better at that point, you know, something that's more than 4,000 years old, mm-hmm. kind of you feel a little more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, I, I went to India in 2004 to, just to make sure I wasn't a wacko coming, you know, and I was misunderstanding this old faith mm-hmm. and I wasn't, it was great. And then since then I've just kept growing on it. So uh, to make this uh, long story uh, just a little bit longer, um, last year a, a head monk at uh, this uh, organization called the Ramakrishna Mission, which is a Vedanta organization, really well known in India, and basically brought a lot of Eastern spirituality to the United States about 100 years ago. Um, they basically invited me out. To, uh, to live and study in the monastery, which was a real honor for me and a, a somewhat unusual thing. Mm-hmm. And so did you have an awful lot of um, interaction with the monks? Um, yes. Uh, yes, a lot. I mean, did they actually teach one-on-one? What, what, what went well, on I, in the I, I tell you what, for one, for one month, I was actually wearing the robes. I was a monk. Mm-hmm. I was in monk training. Mm-hmm. And there was, that was like classroom and, and, and things that were very, um, were very much being taught to me. But mm-hmm. most of it actually was me um, living in a monastery and uh, 
doing writing and conversations with the monks and doing a little service by working in the their bookstore. So for much of it, actually, it was a really informal, self-directed process. They brought me in. I lived on in the monastery with the monks, and most of the learning happened uh, in the margins, you know, over tea during tea time, and uh, you know the conversations I'd have in the bookstore, and uh, it was very organic like that. And so did they speak? I mean, obviously they spoke English. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, were they Indian yeah. or were some of them? Oh, not? yes. Yeah. No, they were all Indian. This mm-hmm. is not a uh, uh, this is not a, a Western monastery. <laughs> they were they were all very much Indian, mm-hmm. and uh, they either spoke Bengali or uh, Hindi or English. And you know, some of them weren't that good with the English, but uh, you know, I knew a little bit of Hindi yeah. from having lived in India in the past. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of them did speak English. You know. It, Used to be a British colony, so there's a, there's still a lot of English in India. I know, but it's a long time ago. I'm sure there's a whole generation now that um, could well rebel and not learn the English. So, well, it didn't happen, yeah. thankfully. No, no. Well, English is um, a really good language. <laughs> it's, it's spoken a lot. <laughs> it's becoming Literally. an international language. It is, yeah, it is. It I, is. You know, I, after the monastery, I spent about five months in the monastery, and I, I told myself if it went really well, then I would do a little travel before I went back to the United States. So that's what brought me to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, I did a little tour of Southeast Asia and I went to Thailand and Cambodia and uh, Vietnam and the Philippines. And then I ended with Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was surprising to me that in every country I, you know, I could, English was a, was all I needed, really. Yeah, well, that's great. That's you know, it's, uh, it is becoming an international language. Now, I think you said something about India um, itself has a world-renouncing philosophy. So, I mean, India's as as a nation, a lot of its population already renounce a lot of the things we Westerners hang on to for, you know, sort of grim death, you know, we have to have all of this <laughs> stuff, and they don't. And this was something that you... Were, were looking for you were you were you know trying to find and I'm not saying that you didn't already have the means to um, detach from certain things but India seemed to be you know the place to go and kind of hone that skill or live it maybe a little bit more easily than you could in the West um well yes I mean most Indians are pretty materialistic too so I don't I'm not I don't want to imply that that it's uh India is, is most Indians are renouncing, mm-hmm. um, but there is a uh, there is a, a, a spiritual tradition uh, that does emphasize renouncing, mm-hmm. and you know, basically at its root, it's it's about not being attached to uh, not being attached to uh, to material things or even to experiences. It's sort of the idea that most of the things that we deal with in the world are impermanent. Basically, you know, people, they're born and they die. You know, you make uh, some glassware and you make it and, and then eventually it'll be destroyed. And, and when it's created, you're happy. But then when it's destroyed, you're sad. You know, when you're, when you're, if your loved one dies, you're not so happy about that. Mm-hmm. So in, inherently, the world sort of has, this, has pain and pleasure built in. And you really can't escape one. Uh, you can't have one without the other because it's, they're tied together basically mm-hmm. from this impermanence. So... Basically, the idea is you don't want to be, um, you don't want to make that the center of your world because you're, 
you're never going to find pure happiness through things that are always being created and destroyed. You got to find it someplace deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's through the permanent. Well, what is permanent? Well, um, if you're a spiritual person, that would be God, God, because God doesn't really change and, you know, can't be killed and destroyed and, you know, really wasn't created either. Um, if you're not a spiritual person, then you could say love because, uh, love at its best, which is also, I could make a very strong case is, is a very spiritual thing. But, uh, you know, even if you don't believe in, in a God, you, you love also is something that's permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, you hold on to that. And uh, that's where real lasting happiness will come from, not from all this, uh, you know, all the, the material goods that we buy and or the trips we take or uh, the plans we make. Mm-hmm. So renouncing is just getting beyond those things and mm-hmm. saying, you know, there's something more out there. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's really difficult in a society. Oh, yeah. And especially in a Western society where, huh. you know, you are defined by your job, your house, your, you know, the, the amount of money in your bank account, your car. Yeah. And um, some people get very unhappy when they can no longer, you know, identify with those material things. It's a little easier in India because in India there is less stuff. We're, we're a real, the United States is a really good country for our stuff. You know, we're, yeah. we're pretty good at, 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 at material goods. And, uh, you know, India is a little less good at it, partially, I think, because maybe on some level they value it less or are conflicted a little bit more about it. Um, and yeah, that's one of the challenges we all face is, is to get, to be non-attached. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the West, it's so much harder. And that's why you do see a lot of people that go to India, at least mm-hmm. for a time, mm-hmm. when they start to think that they need to get beyond these material goods. But the thing is, and this is, I thought about being a monk for mm-hmm. uh, a, a little while. And I, and I do actually consider myself a monk, but not one that's in a monastery. Yeah. And the reason that I decided not to be in a monastery and to stay there, and I was definitely asked by other monks and I was definitely tempted by it. But the reason I didn't was because, you know, that process, when you think of monks, you think about them sort of like isolating themselves. And there's a a reason for that. You know, it does help you get beyond material goods. But if you're really beyond it, you have to be able to be around them and and be not attached. So at some point you got to come back. And for me, I I, I didn't feel like running away from it was the the way that I was going to get not attached. Well, and, and what what are you running away from? It's just like um, if you don't change how you feel on the inside, yeah. you're going to take that with you <laughs> no matter how far away you run. So you've got to deal with yourself, haven't you? You've got to deal yeah. with what's going on inside. Yeah, but it's, sometimes it can be tricky. You know, if, you're, oh, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you are a little attached to sex and kind of want that, then, uh, you know, when you see people wearing, you know, low-cut tops, then, you know, your mind might go there. Mm-hmm. And so there is, you know, there is an argument for taking yourself out of that environment until you have a little more control. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, you can't stay there too long because then you get, you know. Attached to that other kind of life. Well, you can get attached to that too. Yeah. Yeah. Are you really able to resist it or are you just not around it temporarily? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah that, that's, that's the thing. You know, I was just kind of like. I like going to my particular church because I love the liturgy and I, and, you know, I love all of the um, the order and I know exactly what to expect and, you know, no surprises. And I, at one point, I thought, oh my gosh, does that mean more to me than worship? I mean, what if we took all of that away and it's yeah. just me and God, um, you know? And and so that kind of 
drew me up and I made me think, you know, what what do I like about this? Is it is it all the ceremony or is it my relationship with God? You know, so yeah. you know, every now and again. Uh, you we can it's tough. You can fall into that. Yeah, yeah. The ceremony matter you know, you lose sight of it basically. Yeah, and I think Very as, easy as humans we can turn all good things into bad. <laughs> That's very true. Can't That's we? very true. Yeah, we just yeah. have this, this yeah. knack of doing that. All right. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to, we're close to taking a break, so we might as well just kind of wrap this little bit up, and I'm going to go on a short break, and we will be back. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better. To make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Togginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Okay. I now want to talk a little bit to you about um, some of the sort of real life stuff in India that you experience. Like um, I read a story that you told about a traffic jam that you were in on your way somewhere. I think was it in Calcutta. You were in Calcutta at that time. I yes, I was. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So go ahead, and you know, I have a vision of a traffic jam. Okay, you know, like you know, sort of in New York City somewhere, you get all these honking horns. So tell us what a traffic jam is like in the middle of India. Well, you know, there there are no rules right. in India. So what you what you get in a traffic jam is, you know, not only do you get the cars that are just knifed in. Uh, because, well, you know, lines on the road aren't, aren't respected, but then you get bikes weaving in and out, and a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Then you get cows weaving in and out, mm-hmm. and people we- weaving in and out. You get people getting out of their cars, walking over other cars. You get horns. I didn't know what horns were used for on a car before I went to India. I mean, you know, they were always on my car, but whoever uses your horn, or at least <laughs> I never did. Yeah. The country wouldn't function without brakes and horns on their cars <laughs> because there's, there really are no rules. And there's a good reason for that, though, I think, in India. There are so many people in India that, um, you know, if everybody stopped and, you know, waited for the other to pass and there were those rules, it, it would just – everything would grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of efficiency that comes out of the chaos where, you know, everybody's alert, everybody's – finding the little gap and filling it with their vehicle or their, or, or, uh, you know, their body. And so it seems like chaos and it is, 
Uh, I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith who, who said that India was functional anarchy, mm-hmm. but it really is functional anarchy, and, and but it works, uh, you know, so well because you know everyone's just uh, filling all the the inefficiencies with you know another car or another body. So you get that a lot in India. You get a lot of let's make it work. So so what happened? Um, did the you know everything just came to a grinding halt, and nobody was going anywhere, but. Were there police anywhere around? Did anybody? Oh kind of- no, no. It's <laughs> it's self it's self regulating most of the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, they want to get moving, so then somebody you know directs a person out or clears a space or does something. Oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean it. it you know, I, I was reading, I think, in the New Yorker uh, a few months back that there was uh, there's a, a a town I think in uh, the Netherlands that actually is removing the stop signs and the lines on their roads mm-hmm. because. Uh, I guess studies have shown that it actually is more efficient. You know, everybody, people and, and cars all just share the same space. And you'd think it would be horrible. But see, when you do that, everybody has to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so not only is every bit of road used and used efficiently, nobody's sitting there waiting for the other person. And, you know, there's there's no bike lanes, of, you know, that are not being used by anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, you pay attention. So there's actually less accidents apparently too. Not to say there are less accidents in India. There are lots of accidents in India. <laughs> but uh, I think I've been in two or three car accidents in India. Oh, but really? you know, they weren't you know, fast moving. And yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, those are – I was in a taxi. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also you visited the Ganges. I liked that story. I liked the fact that you said it was a holy river. And regardless of whether or not you um, were um, a Hindu – um, you still felt that sacredness. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned in my stories a couple times that maybe it's a good point to, to mention that I blogged about my uh, journey in India and my time in the monastery at a, a, a site called AmericanVedanta.com. That's American and then V-E-D-A-N-T-A.com. And so, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stories about my, my time in India on that site. Um, one of the uh, stories I, that I think you're mentioning was, yeah, when I, when I took my bath in the Ganges, yeah. uh, you know, the Ganges is like, is a very holy river and, uh, it's also known as being a very polluted river. Um, you know, a lot of dead bodies are floated down the river. A lot of, uh, people urinate in the river. A lot of things are thrown away in the river. It's a very, it's, it's, I think one of the most polluted rivers in the, uh, in the world. But yet it's holy, so you get people like bathing in it all the time. <laughs> so here I was, and by the Ganges, and I decided, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a bath in this. And so I, I, I you know, I got down to my swim trunks and went in the in the Ganges very reluctantly. And you know, I didn't like drink the water or anything, but I was, you know, I was in the water. And I, you know, part of a, a spiritual experience is is, is it really what you bring to the experience? Mm-hmm. If you make it, uh, if you look for it to be sacred, then it is more likely to be sacred. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was in that water, I was, I was respecting it, mm-hmm. its sacredness. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I was doing some prayers and I was basically praying, uh, for a couple things. Uh, one of the things I was praying for was to, to love more deeply because love is, is a pretty important thing for, for spirituality or just for good human relationships. And uh, uh, the other thing I was uh, 
praying for was to be a little more playful in my life. You know, bad things happen, but it's a lot of it's how we deal with it. So I was like, you know, I should laugh more and enjoy this process more. Yeah, there'll be bad times, but I should enjoy it. So right after I'd made that prayer, I get hit in the back of the head a little bit, nudged. And, you know, I'm in the, I'm in a river. I'm a little bit uptight because I'm, you know, I'm in India and I'm in this polluted river. And so something hits me in the back of the head and I just I'm, – I'm really freaked out for a second. And I spin around and there's this piece of styrofoam that had just been floating <laughs> down the river. It just it taps me in the back of the head. And you know, it, it probably was just coincidence. But you know, it was really uh, interesting that you know, right after I was like, let's, let's have fun with this life, that I get teased, so to speak, with a piece of styrofoam. <laughs> And then it gets even more exciting because then I go back to shore and, uh, you know, I, I had taken off my glasses and put my, uh, clothes at the most, you know, my shirt at the, uh, the bank and I put it to a, a corner and I'd actually take, had the forethought to put my glasses behind a rock. So if anybody did like steal my stuff, at least my glasses would be there now. Glasses are, you know, it's kind of an important thing when you're you're in a foreign country and especially someplace like India. Mm-hmm. So I did not want to lose my glasses. And during the whole bath, bath, I was kind of looking at my bag, and you know, nothing was wrong. So I go ashore. My bag's there because I'd been watching it, but my glasses are gone. Oh no! I, I know. You know, I, I I can only half see. I've got no backup glasses, no contact lenses. I'm, I've just come out of the Ganges. This is not a good moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put them behind a rock. There's not many places that they can be. Uh, you know, you look for, like, them to fall down or something. But there was no place for them to go. They weren't there, and I, that meant somebody had taken them. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I, I was like, oh, shoot. You know, here's another opportunity to smile, first of all, because this is you – know, I can laugh or I can cry about this yeah. one. And somebody saw me, like – looking around and being a little frantic and they, you know, we tried to communicate and then they went back, grabbed something by their, by their picnic area where they were picnicking and sure enough, they come back with my glasses. Oh no, really? Yeah. They had, <laughs> they had taken them cause they thought that someone had left them and I had just, they just happened to see me and then they just, you know, they could have kept it. Yeah. And, you know, India is a poor country. I'm sure they could have got a little money from those glasses. Yeah, yeah. But they, they came back and not only were they nice enough to bring them back, but they, there was this moment that we, we, we shared where, you know, we just looked at each other like, you know, this could have been so bad. You know, yeah. I know, I know what this is like. You know, you're looking for your glasses and you're in a foreign country and yeah. they're gone. Yeah. And so there was just that wonderful human moment. And it was, uh, it was definitely a moment of love. Okay. So it was, it was really funny that in this, in this, uh, in this uh, Ganges, I had made. I'd asked for two things in my prayer, and both of them had been <laughs> addressed. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was a not exactly like the that. way you were expecting. No, but, but yeah, that life never is, is exactly no, like you. No. So, did you get sick? Yeah, I always get sick when I'm in India. You know, they say don't eat the street food. They say don't drink the water, and I don't drink the water. I definitely do bottled water and boil it, but. It's hard not to get sick when you're in India um, because there is a lot of uncleanliness. Mm. Yeah. So you get sick a couple times. You just build it in. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So um, you went to try not so much to find yourself because I know you know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) You went to try and make sense of how you could live in America or in society around people the way you yeah. feel, right? So do you yeah. feel that you were able to do that? 
I mean, are you making more sense? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, there is a a very palpable sense of, uh, excitement and hope in my life right now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, rare, we all have things about ourselves that, you know, we know we could be better about, you know, we all have flaws that we're trying to fix in ourselves, you know, ways that we do things that are, you know, maybe they're not the best, but it's so hard to fix some of these things. They're really deeply embedded in us. And even if we know what they are, it's, it's hard to correct. And it, it, so many of those things were addressed and many of them were even solved while I was in India this time. It was perhaps the most important six months of my life so far. So have you spent that long in India before? I have actually. Oh, you have? <laughs> I've, I have. I used to live in Udaipur, uh, which is uh, in the state of Rajasthan. It's the borders. It's the state that borders Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I went there in 2004 and worked for a, a homeschooling organization that worked on, on Indian homeschooling. So I've been there before. This, I've, I've been to India many times. And so this wasn't a, a, a new experience being in India. Um, but, but you, were, was, you were on a specific quest this time. Yeah, yeah. This, this. I was. I've never lived in a monastery before. Definitely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, did you live in a couple of monasteries or just the one? I lived. In, well, I mean, I visited a few, but I lived in two principally. I lived in the one in Delhi. The was the primary place I stayed, and I also spent a month in Calcutta, which is where the headquarters is of the organization. It's sort of the. It's like living in the Vatican city if you're Catholic. So I spent a month there and that was actually when I was in the robes and was actually a monk briefly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So pretty much two monasteries. Yeah. And so, um, what was your day like? Um, it was very different in Delhi than in Calcutta. In Calcutta, I was actually, you know, I had a very strict routine. You'd wake up at like three 30 AM and work all day until about 10 or 11 at night. And I mean, every moment was taken up with either, you know, worship or service to others or uh, meditation um, or, you know, uh, knowledge work study. Um, and then in Delhi, it was uh, it was pretty much broken up. I did a lot of writing. I'm working on a book actually about this uh, this trip mm-hmm. since it is somewhat unusual mm-hmm. and I've and uh, I've got a number of interesting stories. So I'm working on a book, and so I was writing that the whole time that I was in the monastery, which gave me a lot of time to reflect and work on my spiritual issues too. I also gave a lot of service by working in the bookstore, which got me in touch with a lot of people because everybody would pass through the bookstore, uh, including the monks. And then the third plank of my day was, was you know, the, the, the worship and, and just talking with the monks. And, uh, you know, working on my spiritual issues. Did you do yoga? I did. Um, I'm proud to say that I actually have a secret mantra. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, You know, and and, and those who who, uh, do yoga, you know, there's many of them, I'm sure, have secret mantras too. And and the truth is that it's not as exciting as it sounds. What, the secret Uh, mantra or I know, the secret mantra. Yeah, the secret mantra part. Um, Basically... You know, the whole secret mantra thing is that they don't want you to do it wrong. There's a right way to do it and there's a way that it will be pretty ineffective. Mm-hmm. So the whole secret thing is not really it's, – it's kind of like an open secret. Mm-hmm. But it's there so people like me don't tell people like you how it works because maybe I'll tell you wrong. Oh. I'm not really qualified in the nuances of that. So, But, but yeah, I, while I was there, I learned yoga. I've 
you know, I'd, I'd done yoga before, but you know, this was the, the authentic Indian variety. Well, the thing is, you know, I've been doing it now for about a year and a half and I have found because I'm, I'm a dancer. So, I mean, I've always worked out. I've always been very, you know, sort of physically active. And I found that with yoga, I could um, address all of my exercise wants and pray and meditate yeah. and do the whole thing. And it became just one. It was just, it was just amazing. Yeah. So um, we're going to have to halt here for another small break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Okay, well, we'll go continue our conversation with um, yoga. Yeah. Well, one of the things that people misunderstand uh, in the West often misunderstand about yoga is, you know, yoga is something that came from India and it really has a much stronger spiritual connection than a lot of what we do in the United States. When you think of yoga, at least when I think of yoga in the United States, I think about postures and exercise and maybe it has a spiritual component, but you know, it's, it's about body basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one type of yoga, but that's actually a real sliver. Yoga is basically the practice of finding God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's some yogas that have nothing to do with body movement whatsoever. So we have this very narrow definition in the West because we're very utilitarian. And so we just t- – we ran with the postures aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But the postures, even the postures are there as a as a way to to to, to get to God to mm-hmm. prepare yourself to receive God, um, you know if you're if you're training to uh, training for something, you know you gotta you gotta exercise and, and get ready for it. And so when you you have that moment, you're you're you know you're prepared. And so that that's what a lot of the postures are actually about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know because there's a because it is actually tied to Hinduism and and, and uh, to this old spiritual tra- spiritual tradition, uh, when it, yoga first came the, to the United States, it was um, that aspect was downplayed mm-hmm. because of you know everyone who was not a believer in Buddhism or you know Vedanta was like ooh you know this is you know why would you want to do this practice of this foreign religion you know mm-hmm. this is this is blasphemy this is not mm-hmm. good so the god was taken out of yoga 
And then now we're putting the God back into yoga. And, you know, if you believe that all paths lead to the same end, you know, you can practice yoga and still be a good Christian. Mm -hmm. But there is a much stronger spiritual component to yoga than a lot of people realize. Mm -hmm. I think it's just starting to catch on to that. Well, and the thing is, to me, it's um, the meditation because you're breathing and you're, you're controlling your breath through all kinds of physical stressful situations on your mat that you can take with you into the life and you know i've really found that i can actually do that you know instead of panicking about something i just you know find my breath and um you know it did that just helps a lot you know sort of it's like it's praying and a lot of my friends because they're homeschoolers go meditation oh my gosh i don't believe you meditate that's such an eastern thing (laughs) and i think well you know in the christian church we have contemplatives exactly that's what they do all the time is they exactly so there is definitely meditation in the in the christian tradition especially in the greek orthodox uh, tradition but that's definitely part of christianity And and, and you said at the beginning of our conversation that you as a young teenager were um had come up with this religion this idea and then <laughs> yeah, you i just out. ran across it i, I yeah. certainly didn't create it but no, yeah no but well uh, but you your interpretation of it and how you ran with it you discovered was out there um you know for real and had been for four thousand years and i always think that it's there i mean god has put himself in the world and we instinctively, I think, if we allow ourselves to surrender and, and let go, we instinctively know. Yeah. Well, the go. truth, the truth is the truth, and it's yeah. going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you can hide it, but it's, it, it, it rings true mm-hmm. when you when you find the truth. It, it rings true. And yeah. you were you were in India, and you're finding, you're trying to discover how to find God through other people and you're having a little bit of success with that. Uh, is yeah. that what they did? I mean, do they do the same thing in India? I mean, do, do a lot of people kind of do that? Um, soul well, matching and that kind of thing? Well, no. Um, and that's actually the area where I'm uh, maybe most interesting. You know, I really blend together Christianity with, um, with Vedanta. And so it's out there, but it's a, it's a, a niche practice. It's, it's something, it's one path, but you get the, you get a lot of Christians who won't touch Vedanta because it's not Christian or seem, doesn't seem like it. And you get a lot of Vedantins also who dismiss Christianity. So, you know, I coming from the United States, I was definitely came from a Christian background. And then at the same time, you know, there's a lot of this, uh, I came to this Vedanta. So yeah, I mean, I, I emphasize the, the, the human component a little bit more than some. And that's ultimately why I am not still in a monastery because, you know, you can worship by being out there in the world too. Oh yes. Oh yes. Be a witness. Yeah. Yeah, Among other things. Yeah. Yeah. Walk the talk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and I, and, and you, you find that you can do that. I mean, you know, sort of if you, if you look at people, that's my life's, that's yeah. my life's path. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my life's project. You know, there's a couple things I've done in my life that are I'm really proud of. Uh, one is I feel like I contributed to the, the the homeschooling discussion with all the work I've done about grown homeschoolers and the lasting mm-hmm. influence of home education. And mm-hmm. you know, that's what you can find it on schooler.com and in my documentary, Grown Without Schooling. Um, and that was like my first contribution. And I feel like this is the second one. It's a much longer take, going to take longer, and it's it's still in progress more, but yeah, I, it's a, 
I've got something to say, I think. So are you so, closer to finding out the um, meaning of life? <laughs> I've already found it. The problem is the problem is not reaching nirvana. The problem is staying there. Yeah. 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 Well, that's mountaintop and you can't stay there. You it's tough. To come down it's tough. Sometime. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So have you heard of um, Bede Griffiths? I have. I wouldn't want to talk intelligently during a radio show about No, that. no. But <laughs> I, I thought, well, you know what? If you're interested in visiting another monastery, maybe you could go to the – there's an ashram that um, – he founded, and um, I don't know if it's exactly the same as it was when he was there, but, you know, he blended uh, mm-hmm. Christianity with um, um, Buddhism and Hindu, and, uh, you know, he, he found a way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's out there. Yeah. It, it definitely is, yeah. And he wasn't I've, popular with the Catholic Church, I don't think. Ah, yeah, yeah, I know. That's always one of the challenges <laughs> I have, you know. I. I I I was when I was in the Philippines. One of the great joys was being at the the at uh, the first Catholic church in the Philippines. You know, mm-hmm. Philippines is a Catholic country, and, and I, I got to worship at the first Catholic church really? in Cebu City, and it was so it was it was a it was a, a exciting moment for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'm sure some Catholics would think that I'm a, maybe not on the right path, but. You know, everyone's on their path, and who really knows for yeah, certain? And we have I, res- own- I respect that difference of opinion. Yeah, and we have our as long as we have our personal relationship with God, I think that's the most important thing. And you are searching for that, and um, very, yeah. very laudably. And thank goodness you're writing about it too. Because, um, <laughs> I love reading those kinds of books. And we've come to the end of our time together, Peter. I've been talking this week to Peter Kowalki, who has a very solid sense of self derived from his experiences as an unschooled. Peter lives in New York and has just returned from a six-month spiritual journey to Asia, and he's literally just off the plane. We talked about being ourselves and the challenges presented when we try to mesh that with a society fueled by attachments and materialism. Peter's written an informative and honest blog that you need to go and look at about his travels um, on AmericanVedanta.com, and I'll put the link on my Turkinet page. And you can also find out about his work with unschoolers on the unschooler experiment at um, unschooler.com. Conversations, Peter, with you are always thought-provoking, and I've enjoyed our little short foray into the development and growth of your philosophies and spirituality while living in a monastery in India. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I wish Thanks you for all the best with your continued quest right? to lose <laughs> yourself you. and find God in everyone around you. All right. <laughs> so you have a great weekend, and hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. All right. Peter and I ended our conversation with some words about Bede Griffiths. I read his biography, Beyond the Darkness, by Shirley Duboulet, and I thought it would be interesting to share a little bit of who he was to tie Peter's thinking in with this Benedictine monk's spiritual beliefs. I discovered a website called the Bede Griffiths Trust, an association for the renewal of the contemplative life by Pascaline Koff, OSB, which I'll be using. In Bede's words, the surrender of the ego is the only way of life. Only then can I find a true Christian path, because our life here is not about us. It's about God, all about God. Bede um, visited Prinknash Abbey, a community of Roman Catholic Benedictine monks when he was about 26 in Gloucestershire. Here he was received into the Catholic Church and took his vows as a Benedictine novice at the age of 26, much against his mother's will. For him, following Christ meant being a monk, but he had decided that I was no longer the centre of my own life.
And um, when he was in his 40s, he asked permission to go to India. And at first, his abbot said no. But then in the end, he did send B to India, but not as part of Prinknash. And so he had to eventually um, leave his vowed status with Prinknash Abbey. And of this he wrote, the surrender of the ego is the only way of life. And it is the most difficult thing that we have to do. But when he was leaving for India, he was so thrilled. He said to a friend, I'm going to discover the other half of my soul. And he remained there for the rest of his life. He entered into the tradition of Indian sannyasa, the monkhood, and wanting to establish a Christian ashram at Shantivanam, he and his fellow monks dressed in kavi, the orange robes, and Father B took the Sanskrit name, Dayananda. And he immersed himself in the study of Indian thought, attempting to relate it to Christian theology. And it's a really, really interesting process that he goes through to do this. He went on pilgrimage and studied um, Hinduism. And um, his ashram became a center of contemplative life and enculturation and interreligious dialogue. Those are difficult words to say, one after the other. And in 1973, he published Vedanta and the Christian faith. And that's what Peter and I were talking about earlier. He was a man with a universal heart. He had no guile and saw no guile in others. He honored the sacredness of every person because he believed so deeply that each person is a unique image of the divine. For him, this meant he had to be centered and grounded. And he did this through the daily practice of meditation and contemplative prayer. And this opened him ever more to the myths, symbols and teachings of other great religions of the world. He became a mystic in the tradition of the desert monks of ancient times. And he believed that God's work and the emptiness of the soul is eternal. He all but saw the spark of God in everyone. Father B. Griffiths, Swami Dayananda, died May 13th, 1993, at the age of 86, barefooted and clothed in the colour of the sun, in his thatched hut at Shantivanam in South India. Visit the website beadgriffiths.com to learn more about our early Christian mystics. Don't be afraid to use tools to help you get closer to God. And with that, I have got to close for the week. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I have a busy weekend coming up, traipsing around Texas, visiting family and friends, and catching up with news and views. I'll be here, not the same time. I have an earlier time. It'll be, well, I have a later time, actually. It'll be 11 o'clock central. Um, the place is still Toginet, so no excuses. Be back next week with me at 11 o'clock. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight. Our four children who are the result of that belief. I'm back. The hardworking staff at Toginet Radio, my guest Peter Kowalki, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindale, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are a part of my growing audience. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.